time is it? Oh, we've got plenty of time. Matthew 9, beginning in verse 1, we'll read and then we'll pray. Do, 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 do. The world is crazy, isn't it, y'all? Craziness everywhere. <clears throat> Matthew 9, verse 1. So, he got, okay. so, he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Then, behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And at once, some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Arise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. I imagine so. Now, when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, what? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but, but sinners to repentance. And when the disciples of John came to him, then the disciples of John came to him, rather, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples don't fast? <clears throat> Jesus said to them, Listen, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. See, no one puts a, a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, 
and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for twelve years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment, because she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. When Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, Make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out into all that land. When Jesus departed from there... When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. But when they departed, they spread the news about him in all that country, I'm sure. (laughs) As they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. The Pharisees said, The Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. And he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Well, that's a lot of stuff, huh? (laughs) Let's let's talk about it for a little bit. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I'm so grateful for your patient and steadfast love. Surely you are our rock and our hope, our joy and our peace. You've shown yourself to us, Lord, and you've called us to be near to you and promised us that you would be near to us. In a world that's full of the chaos that we are able to see um, with how quickly information is spread, uh, in our uh, in our society, um, the world's always been a mess, Lord. <laughs> but even in the middle of, of this um, chaos, um, you are sure, steadfast, immovable. You are immutable, Lord. And there is no one else like you. And so we worship you. We, we praise you. We give you glory and honor. Because it all belongs to you. 
all glory and honor and power forever and ever, Father, is yours. Oh, would you teach us to trust you, I pray. Lord, would you teach us to trust you. We pray that you do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, you guys, so <clears throat> a couple of things I do want to point out about where Matthew is taking his gospel here, where Matthew seems to be taking the story. Uh, one of the things is that in this section in Matthew, uh, after the Sermon on the Mount, we see these stories of Jesus healing, of Jesus doing various miracles, and we're going to see him being rejected by uh, primarily some of the religious leaders, right? The people that you might think, or that we might think naturally, these would be the people that would, uh, these would be the people that would be right on. They would be the people who would know what God was doing. They would be the people who would receive and accept the message from God, but they um, frequently were not. Um, now, <clears throat> One of the things that Matthew does make a point of that I think is very interesting is how in so many of these miracles, Jesus points to the faith or the trust that the people have that the miracles are performed uh, regarding, right? Uh, and, and we see this in various ways, some of which are actually surprising to me as we go through it. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. We're going to get a couple chapters later where Jesus actually goes back to Capernaum and uh, back to the area where he was sort of centering his ministry, and even back around the area of Nazareth. And the text is going to tell us that he could not do, or he was unable to do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And he was going to say that a prophet is not without honor except in his, among his own people, essentially, right? So they were like, and some of the questions they asked were, wait, 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 this Jesus guy, you know, Yeshua, isn't he Joseph's son? Like, what's he, what's he doing, man? Right? So... Uh, so in, in a very true sense, their familiarity with Jesus bred contempt. They, they didn't understand how he was able to do what he was doing or why he was able to do it. Um, and uh, anyhow, so Matthew's sort of taking us along that line and also showing us that Jesus is in many ways presenting what the kingdom of heaven looks like. He's already described sort of what, what I like to refer to as the constitution of God's kingdom. That's what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Uh, where he, he kind of reveals the very heart of the law, the heart of what God's desire is and God's intention, um, and what true righteousness looks like. You see, it's not enough, Jesus would say, it's not enough to not murder somebody. Of course, that's good, right? Don't go around murdering people, right? But Jesus said, if you're angry at your brother without just cause, you're guilty of God's judgment, right? If you spout off words like raka, which means empty-headed, or you fool. I mean, I'm sure none of you have ever said anything or called anybody a name in anger before. I'm sure that's never happened to any of you guys. But uh, Jesus said, you know, that essentially makes us guilty of the same thing. Murder itself is rooted in, uh, in, in anger and in harboring anger in the heart. It then spills out. We lose control of ourselves and it spills out uh, sometimes into the act of murder, right? Jesus said it's not enough that you, um, <clears throat> that you don't commit adultery, though, of course, you should not go commit adultery, right? But, <laughs> but I say to you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, now you're guilty, already, right? And then he goes on in uh, several different uh, several different ways sort of talking about all of that stuff. So uh, about the heart of the law and about what true righteousness looks like. He would take it so far as to say to his hearers, if your righteousness is not greater or does not exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now you got to, right, we have to kind of familiar ourselves, familiarize ourselves with the language of it, right? The scribes were experts in the law of Moses. 
the Pharisees prided themselves on their keeping of the Torah and of the traditions that had been passed down. So not just the Torah, but additional traditions that had been passed down by other rabbis. Okay? Um, Jesus said, if your righteousness doesn't exceed the spiritual people's righteousness, right? That's kind of the idea here then you won't even see the kingdom. You won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? In fact, he ends uh, one of the chapters there by saying, um, you shall be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect, which can be a daunting thing to hear, right? <laughs> um, but it's reflective of the law of Moses, where God keeps saying over and over again to the nation of Israel, be holy because I'm holy. It's, a, it's almost an exact reflection of that same thing. God is different than anything else and everything else. So you be different than the, than the world around you, right? Um, the last thing we looked at, the end of chapter 9, or the end of chapter 8, rather, is Jesus taking this excursion that, for all intents and purposes, I would look at and say, this is spurious. He goes from Capernaum across the Sea of Galilee. He meets the demon-possessed dudes in the tombs. He, the, de- the demons there are like, whoa, 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 are you come to torment us before the time? And Jesus is like, he well, actually doesn't say anything then. He's like, they just say, if you're going to cast us out, let us go into these pigs over here. So he says, go ahead and go. And then they did. They left the people that they were uh, controlling, and they went into the pigs, and apparently the pigs, then they controlled the pigs and drove them off a cliff, right? So... Uh, likely, or at least possibly, uh, business of that area, right? If you've got a, a bunch of pigs, um, possibly business in that area, whatever it was, the people that lived in the city came out after this event, and they welcomed Jesus with open arms and said, Isn't it wonderful the Messiah is here and set these demon-possessed men free? They were tormenting us and everyone around. Isn't this so great? <laughs> Just kidding, right? That's not how the story goes, right? <laughs> they, they came out of the out of the city to Jesus, where he was. Um, and even though these demon-possessed men are, are now sitting and in their right mind, previously they had been, like tried to chain them up, they tried to restrain them, basically put them in jail, in their, their form of a mental hospital, if you would. They just tried to restrain them. And they were unable to, they break the chains. I mean, this whole scene is, is wild, right? And, and they were naked and just craziness happening. And they see them sitting in their right mind and totally fine. Normal is whatever normal really means, right? But they see them they see them sitting there, no longer controlled the way that they had been controlled. <coughs> and um, their response to Jesus is, get out of here. <laughs> we, just just leave. We we don't want we don't want you here. Uh, sad response. So and then he we begin chapter nine with him leaving. He got into a boat, crossed over and he came to his own city. Now, a couple of things happened on that trip, right? On the way over to that area, the Gergesenes or the Gadarenes, on the way over to that, uh, the disciples were in the boat with Jesus and the storm came, right? You guys are familiar with this story, right? This is one of the times this particular thing happened, right? They were on the Sea of Galilee, it's just a giant freshwater lake in the northern part of Israel. And um, the storm came, and everybody's losing their minds, thinking they're going to die. And they wake Jesus up because he's asleep in the middle of the storm. I just, I just love Jesus so much. He just is not bothered by the stuff that bothers us. It's so awesome, right? He's asleep, right? And they're like, some of them, possibly half of them, are fishermen who regularly fished on that lake. Like, that was where their job was. That was their profession. They had been out there regularly. For their, most of their lives, no doubt. 
And still, these guys are like, we're perishing, we're going to die. So, um, Jesus stood up and he calmed the storm. And their response is, I think, as it only could have been, who in the world is this? Right? I mean, they're following Jesus as rabbi, as a Jewish itinerant teacher. This was a normal thing for Jewish society. There were many rabbis, and they would call disciples to follow them in many different ways. But Jesus is presenting himself as something much different than what, uh, what uh, the other rabbis were. Okay. And uh, the disciples now look at, they're just in this middle of the scene, they're like, who can this be? Certainly, those demon-possessed men in the Gadarenes were really happy Jesus made that excursion, right? Sometimes we don't, um, we like to judge success based on uh, greater numbers, right? If there are like 500 people that something happens to or that somebody's blessed with, then that's really good or, or more successful or more important than maybe two people who were set free, right? Um, but, of course, Jesus doesn't uh, judge things in that way, um, I'm sure these two guys were really happy that he came. <laughs> um, so he got into a boat, chapter 9, verse 1. He got into a boat, he crossed over, and he came to his own city. Then, behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now stop right there for a second. If you look this story up in the other Gospels that record it, you find a whole lot more detail. What's fascinating to me is that Matthew doesn't include the details here uh, that some of the other gospel writers include. Part of the reason is because of where his focus is. He's presenting Jesus as the king of Israel, as the, the Messiah uh, of the Jewish people. And so he uh, essentially summarizes this story. This is the story where the, the four dudes carry their friend and the house is so full of people that they go up onto the roof and they basically dig a hole in the roof you imagine what that situation's like? You know, like stuff starts to fall down and crumple down, right? They dig a hole in the roof and they lower the guy down, right? Right in the middle there because there were too many people in the house. It shows us a couple of things about them. Certainly perseverance, certainly the fact they, were, they believed that, they certainly believed that Jesus would be able to help their friend. Does that make sense? I wouldn't go through all of that trouble if I didn't genuinely believe that Jesus could do something for my friend, but they did. Um, they, then behold, verse 2 says, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Paralytic being the person who's paralyzed. Right? When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, I want you to slow down as you read this story. I grew up in the church. I read these stories a lot, sometimes really fast. And sometimes I neglect, neglect some of the details because of how quickly I think about them, simply because of my familiarity. When Jesus saw their faith, that's the first thing I want you to pay attention to. The mention here is not only of the paralyzed man's faith, but also of his friends that brought him. Their faith, that is a plural term, their faith. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Stop right there. Imagine the scene. Everybody's in this house. It's packed, man, because, because Jesus is there and he's teaching and he's healing. He's been doing miracles for, some, for a little bit of time now. The house is full of people, so full that, that they can't even get inside. They go to the roof of the house. They make a way in. They lower the guy down. And, and Jesus recognizes their faith by what, by what happens here. And then he looks at the guy and he says, Son, cheer up. Your sins are forgiven you. 
immediately. My question is, wait, Jesus, I'm paralyzed. Uh, you've been healing all these people, man. I came to you because I'm paralyzed. <laughs> I, I want to walk again. Right? Jesus looks at him and says, son, cheer up. Your sins are forgiven you. I can't help but think, I wonder if there was, maybe not because of what that means, but um, would there be disappointment there? Lord, I wanted you to make me walk again. You're talking about the forgiveness of sins? Now there's reason, obviously, we're going to move to reason for this and reason why Matthew records it the way that he does. But, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And at once, some of the scribes said within themselves, this is their internal thought process, some of the uh, scribes, as I mentioned to you um, either uh, a couple weeks ago now, there were several miracles that uh, traditionally the Jews believed that only the Messiah would be able to do. Uh, one of them was the cleansing of leprosy, because no one in Jewish history had ever been cleansed of leprosy. No Jewish person had been cleansed of leprosy. Um, then the uh, other one was the casting out of a mute spirit, a mute uh, demon-possessed person. And the reason for that was that the uh, Hebrew or Jewish exorcists. Exorcism was a common practice in the Jewish faith. And what they would do is they would go to a person who they believed to be demon-possessed, and they would uh, ask the demon to tell them their name, and then they would call the demon out of the person by its name, by whatever name it identified itself as. And of course, like the demon-possessed men in the previous story, they identified themselves, the demons identified themselves as legion, they said, because we are many. Right, <laughs> it's ominous, <laughs> and then they get thrown into the, they get cast into those uh, pigs, right? So, anyhow, so that was one of the miracles they believed would be done by the Messiah. The final one was uh, that a essentially that a birth defect uh, would be uh, healed. Okay, and this is why John takes so much time. It's in John chapter nine, uh, talking about the man who was born blind. It's why he was so incredibly interviewed by the religious leaders because. They were expecting only the Messiah to do these certain miracles, and that was one of them, uh, was that a person... Uh, and in fact, that's why they called his parents, and they're like, this guy's telling us that he was born blind. Is this really your son who was born blind, right? I mean, they go in-depth trying to research whether or not what this guy's saying is true, because they uh, traditionally believed that these were things that their Messiah would do. Okay. Now, um, <clears throat> their response to Jesus... At, at once, some of the scribes said within themselves, this is telling us that now we have some of the religious leaders now approaching Jesus. And we're going to see Pharisees in the next section, okay? So some of the religious leaders and other leaders of Israel are now approaching Jesus, certainly to check on what he's doing, to find out if he really is the Messiah, to uh, make their official determination for the nation of Israel, right? And, and they're going to, at the end of this chapter, they're going to begin that official determination by saying, he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. That's going to become their official designation of what Jesus did and the power with which he did it. And Jesus is eventually going to say, um, every sin against the Father will be forgiven you and against the Son. But if you blaspheme the Spirit, it will not be forgiven you. And judgment would then be pronounced on the nation of Israel as a whole. While some in Israel believed, right, there was always a remnant, Israel itself would be judged. And it would only be uh, about 40 years after Jesus' ministry, about a generation later, that Israel was, we might say, officially judged, right? When Titus Vespasian 
uh, before he was emperor, he was a general, when he moved through the area and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed Israel, destroyed the temple, some say uh, sort of by accident, but still destroyed the temple. Um, it happened literally that generation. Okay, so we'll talk about that stuff certainly a lot more as we continue to go through the text, going through the text. But uh, for where we are now, at once some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. For you to say your sins are forgiven you, um, why would that be blasphemy, right? Certainly the idea is that only God can forgive sins. Or the idea maybe that we could uh, clarify is that only God can forgive sin against God. We might say it that way, right? If somebody offends you, or somebody does something wrong to you, and I go to them and I'm like, oh, I forgive you. <laughs> the person that actually has the debt against them is going to be like, wait a minute, <laughs> you can't forgive them for me, I have to forgive them, right? They owe the debt to me, right? <laughs> Um, so that certainly is the idea here. If we have a debt that we owe to God, our sin, the wages of sin is death, then for someone else to come and say, um, I forgive you, or kind of on behalf of God, if you would, would be blasphemy because you'd be saying, I have the authority from God to do this. Or you might be saying, I am God. Which is, of course, what Jesus is saying. <laughs> the scribes knew exactly what the deal was. That's why they said, this man blasphemes. Nobody can forgive sins but God alone. That's something they're going to say in another place later on. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, <laughs> I just love Jesus. <laughs> he knows what's going on in their mind. He knows exactly what they're thinking. And he says, why do you think evil in your hearts? Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? <laughs> if I was one of the scribes at this point, my, I feel like my heart would be dropping, right? It'd be like in my stomach, like, wait a minute, how does he know what we're thinking? <laughs> why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? Which is easier to say? Well, in a very direct sense, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven you than it is to say arise and walk because you don't need any proof, right? To say your sins are forgiven you, you don't have to prove anything. But to say get up and walk, if you're claiming to have that kind of power or authority, you're going to have to show some proof, right? Get up and walk. It's got to be proven by the person getting up and walk, walking, right? Which is easier to say as we read to you? Uh, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk. But that, that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, I love this, he's talking to like the scribes now, and then as he gets to this point, he turns to the paralytic now. Then he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And you got to know that this is the, because this man trusted, he believed that Jesus was able to do this. He arose, verse 7 says, and departed to his own house. He's like, I'm going to get out of here. <laughs> he gets up and he walks out. And you can imagine then the whole, this is a, a room, a house that is filled with people and everybody, in my mind at least, everybody is probably sitting just stunned at this whole interchange, at this whole exchange, right? What just happened? This guy <laughs> magically is lowered down from the roof by his buddies 
Jesus said, your sins are forgiven you. The religious leaders here, the scribes, are like, wait, 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 you, this guy's blaspheming. They're thinking to themselves. Jesus is like, you guys are thinking some evil stuff in your heart, man. Because, I mean, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you or take up your bed and walk? And then he looks right at the guy and he says, take up your bed and walk. And the guy does it. A couple of things that I want to at least point out in summary of this particular text is the reality that this uh, very direct um, <clears throat> physical desire, or we might say need, um, uh, of him being healed of this paralysis was something that um, became an, an object lesson that Jesus used to demonstrate the greater power or to meet the greater need, which was the forgiveness of sins. His greater need was that his sins be forgiven. That's more important than, than that he uh, be healed of his paralysis, because being healed of your paralysis may last you 30, 40, 50, 60 years, right? That may be fine, but at some point you're going to die, and then the forgiveness of sins, <laughs> if it hadn't already, the forgiveness of sins is going to be somewhat paramount at that point, right? <laughs> because the wages of sin is death, right? So Jesus uses this very natural physical healing as an illustration or example or something to demonstrate his spiritual authority, his spiritual power, and then even uses it, this whole situation, this whole interaction to meet a, a spiritual need as well as a physical one. Now some of what Jesus is doing here is presenting to the nation of Israel as he has been in all of the other healings, presenting to the nation of Israel what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is what the kingdom of God is like healing and and of course we go to the end of the book right and we see when the kingdom comes in its fullness we go to the end of the book of revelation and we see there's no more sickness there's no more death there's no more sorrow or crying because all the former things have passed away that is the the place that god is marching everything to and now jesus is presenting this to israel a kingdom which they will most of them reject and then, of course, Paul points out how then the kingdom then was sent to uh, the Gentiles. <laughs> okay. He also points out that a remnant of Jews believe that some of the Jews did believe. Certainly the early church itself was formed primarily of Jews. <clears throat> the guy arose and departed to his, to his house. Jesus saw their faith. Think about how I pray for other people. Am I willing to believe the Lord for others? Am I willing to bring them to the Lord like this guy's friends brought him to the Lord? Those sorts of thoughts or questions that I ask myself when I pray. <clears throat> the response of the people is um, as it should be. Verse 8, Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. Of course, they don't know exactly. They don't know who Jesus is. They're just like, this is amazing. They marveled at this whole interaction. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. <laughs> I love this part of the story because it's literally the only thing that we, that we read about Matthew. The dude who wrote the book. <laughs> That's it. And it's actually even a short, this is a, even a condensed form of what the other gospel writers that include this section, uh, this is even a, a more condensed form of what they say, which itself is not a whole lot, but they do mention that he was at the tax office, he was a tax collector, and that he left 
all and followed Jesus. It is interesting that Matthew leaves out that idea, though it was what he did. Right? He just abandoned what he knew. Now, one of the things about tax collectors that we've mentioned before is that um, if you were collecting taxes for, in the nation of Israel, if you were collecting taxes for your Roman oppressors, right? Rome had spread through this area. The Roman Empire had spread through this area. They had appointed governors uh, in different places, many of which were very brutal. They had done terrible things, um, just as many others in the Roman Empire had to the locals or the natives. But um, if you were working collecting taxes for your Roman oppressors, you probably weren't real well liked amongst your Jewish neighbors, right? Because Israel considered itself to be a country. They certainly wanted autonomy, though at this point, there in this point in history, they had not, um, the power to exercise capital punishment had been taken away from the nation of Israel by the Romans. In order for them to exercise legal capital punishment, um, they actually had to have a uh, Roman authority uh, to do that. Of course, enter Caiaphas later on in the story, right? We'll get there um, as it relates to Jesus' um, trial later on. But if you're collecting taxes for the government of the people who have taken over your government, right? Who've invaded your land and taken it over and appointed their own governors and kings to rule over your area, you're not thought of really well. In fact, this idea of a tax collector is oftentimes coupled with sinners, tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors, Gentiles, which is anybody who's not a Jewish person, right? Also not something that was seen favorably or Samaritans, like Davy talked about uh, last week, and sinners. All of these other groups are sort of the collective other for the nation of Israel, and they were not viewed in a positive light. In fact, they were seen in a very, very negative light, very negative view. Jesus goes, and he saw this man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. This is... I know it's not a whole lot of writing, but this is a shocking thing. The fact that Jesus would call um, fishermen to come be his close disciples was also shocking. They had learned their family's trade. That was what their lives were committed to. They, they didn't grow up in the elite, literate group of people who had grown up studying the law who had grown up learning the traditions of the elders. That was not their position. That was not their place in life. And now Jesus comes to this tax collector, this sort of traitor to the nation of Israel. One of the things about tax collectors that was pretty cool if you were a tax collector is that you could actually use the authority you had from Rome because you're collecting taxes for Rome to extort whatever you wanted from people. Who's keeping track? All you have to do is give to your boss whatever the tax is that you're required for your area, but you could take whatever you wanted from the, you, and you could even use the Roman soldiers to force people to give to you. And so many of the tax collectors certainly would have been, would, it's a very lucrative business to be in because you can use authority, power, government power to take what you want from people. And many of them did. In fact, 
um, in another place uh, when John the Baptist was talking about what the Romans, any Roman person or centurion, if they were uh, repenting for the remission of sins and he was describing what they were to do, what that was to look like, it was to look like them not taking more than they were supposed to be taking for taxes because that was the normal thing, right? If, I mean, think about it. If you have no immediate oversight or little immediate oversight and you have power to get soldiers behind what you're demanding and you can go to anybody you want to in that society in which you are extracting taxes for the government and you get to keep whatever it is you get that's over, that's over the amount you have to pay in, right? Because you're the one essentially keeping track of it and then uh, giving it to the people over you. It provides a real, real ample opportunity for you to take advantage of that and to rip people off. I'm sure there's never been a government authority who wanted to do that before. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> uh, to line their own pockets. <laughs> right? um, Jesus sees Matthew sitting there and he says, follow me. And Matthew leaves everything and follows him. This is an, an incredible abandonment to Jesus. One, of course, uh, we believe that the Lord asks of us as well, that we forsake everything, that we let go of, that we lose our grip on all the things around us in which we find security and safety, and we find ourselves committed to him, trusting him, following him wherever he leads us. <clears throat> Matthew arose and followed him. Hmm. Now it happened, verse 10, I think this continues the calling of Matthew, by the way, and I'll tell you why in a sec if you don't catch it. It happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners. Now who did Jesus just call to come follow him? Matthew, a tax collector, right? Now he's in the house. What house is that? I don't know. <laughs> It doesn't say what house it is. But I wonder if maybe it's Matthew's house. <laughs> it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, <clears throat> they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now there's... Uh, an idea here of um, having communion with or sharing with someone, putting yourself on the same level as them whenever you share a meal, whenever you eat together with somebody. Um, whether it was, as some have suggested, the idea of like you take your bread and you dip it in the different sauces and you eat it and then like you double dip and triple dip and so it's like weird or whatever. But like there's an intimacy involved in sharing a meal with people, right? In, um, in the thinking of the law of Moses, there was this reality that something that was unclean, if something that was holy or clean or ceremonially, ceremonially or religiously clean, if it came in contact with something that was unclean, the clean thing or the holy thing would become unholy or unclean, right? And it was, so, it was that sort of mentality that then kept like the Pharisees and other groups from being like, no, 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 we don't touch lepers, because we'll become unclean. We don't eat with tax collectors and sinners because that would make us unclean. Spiritually, ceremonially unclean. Okay? So they would stay away from that. That's why they come to Jesus now. 
these um, people who think they are keeping the law and the tradition of the elders, the Pharisees, when they see Jesus eating with uh, tax collectors and sinners, again, keep in mind that they're now probably following him around, examining him based on the previous things he had done, the cleansing of the lepers. And uh, we're going to get in a little bit here to where he actually um, casts out this mute spirit, and then they make a judgment, <coughs> they pronounce a judgment uh, about him, uh, begin to pronounce a judgment about him, certainly. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? It is interesting how quickly we judge uh, people. And um, we judge whether or not some people are good enough for our um, group, if you would. Right? Uh, I've seen um, <laughs> I've seen some ideas of things that are like, if somebody is toxic in your life, then you know you get them out of your life or whatever. And I'm like, well, like you're toxic to the people around you sometimes. <laughs> Does that mean that they should get you out of their life too? <laughs> We're all messed up, right? Uh, but quickly we judge people. And this was um, this judgment, as we've talked about, of like tax collectors and sinners. It's a very generic, sort of general thing, but it encompassed a large group of people, so much so that the religious elite, like the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the scribes, viewed themselves as being above or over or better than these lower classes of people. Now, this is not exclusive to Israel, right? I mean, class ideology is common throughout much of human history, right? And if you were part of a class, frequently you just stayed part of that class. It was because it's what you inherited, it's what you were born into. When Jesus heard their response, or their question, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Right? That makes sense, right? Like you go to the doctor when you're sick, right? Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Because I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, one of the problems the Pharisees had was that they viewed themselves as righteous in and of themselves because of their ability to keep the traditions or to keep what they believe to be the right standards, right? They went to church on Saturday, if you would. They, they did all the right stuff. They gave a tenth of all of the, even, even down to the minute spices, they gave a tenth of all of their little spices, right? They keep the law, they thought, but they neglected the heart. And that was the whole deal, the whole thing, as Jesus summarized uh, in, an, in a couple other places, all the laws fulfilled in this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. What Jesus refers them to here is actually in the book of Hosea, um, this line in verse 13, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Listen, Jesus is saying to some of the uh, teachers in Israel, the Pharisees, some of the political and spiritual leaders, go and learn what this means. <laughs> Referring back to the prophets of Israel. <laughs> That's a little offensive, okay? These are supposed to be the learned people, right? These are supposed to be the ones whose lives are dedicated to the keeping of the law and to knowing what God wants. And Jesus says, go and learn what this means. 
<clears throat> as he uh, quotes there from uh, Hosea. The quote is actually in Hosea uh, chapter 6. It's Hosea 6, um, verse 6. And um, I want to read to you um, Hosea 6 because I think it's very interesting. Um, Hosea is talking about here in Hosea chapter 6, uh, Israel's return after judgment, or after they have been judged. Their spiritual return is the idea. In Hosea chapter 6, he says, Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. Hmm, that sounds interesting, doesn't it? <laughs> that we may live in his sight. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud, and like the early dew, it goes away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets, or torn them. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And your judgments are like light that goes forth. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Certainly what's being spoken of here in this text, and then later on when Jesus addresses the Pharisees directly, is a um, false sort of religious system where you go through the motions, but your heart is not involved. As Jesus would say, again, when he's addressing, addressing the Pharisees very directly later on in Matthew's Gospel, this people <coughs> worships me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, he would say. There are lots of ways that people keep traditions, even spiritual traditions, religious traditions, um, but their heart is not involved. And the way that the... Pharisees viewed the other people was the the tax collectors and sinners was indicative of a heart problem. And Jesus now refers to Hosea 6 uh, verse 6 when he says I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Learn what that means, you guys. They could keep the sacrifices religiously, but if they didn't show mercy to their neighbors, they missed the whole point. They missed the very heart of God. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God more than burnt offerings, God says there in Hosea 6. I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Of course, this is one of the problems that the nation of Israel itself had as a whole was in trying to establish their own righteousness and trying to say that they were good enough because they kept the law of Moses, or they kept the traditions of the elders. What they did was they neglected to embrace the righteousness of God that would be given to them as a gift. And this is something that Paul makes very clear as he writes to the Roman church. But God had not cast off Israel completely. <laughs> there was still a group, a remnant who trusted, a remnant who believed. But even so, now... 
The same thing is true, that we have religious systems that have been established whereby people think if they keep all of the steps, if they follow all of the rules, if they say the prayer the right way, or if they have the, you know, the attendance record at church that looks a certain way, or if they give a certain amount, if they keep all of the, the steps, all of the rules, then that means that they are right with God because of their own works. But Jesus didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners to repentance. The fact that Jesus rescues sinners, that is the great news. It's not as though Jesus comes into the world and says, here's what is perfect, here's what is right, try your best to do it, and if you do a good enough job, then you'll be with me forever. Instead, he comes and he says... I'm the righteous one, essentially, <laughs> and you're not. But if you'll trust me, I will rescue you, and I will transform your life. This is what the great news, the gospel, is about. It's about the fact that God justifies the ungodly, that he rescues sinners. And this illustration here, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... <sighs> It's so apropos. But not if we think we're good enough. Not if we think we're able to keep enough on our own, to do enough good things on our own. This is one of the reasons, it's texts like this, it's one of the reasons that keeps me, <laughs> keeps me uh, reminded of Jesus' power and his authority in my life, because I still fail. And I come back to this, and I say, Lord, you came to save sinners. This is where my hope is. I know that if the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for sin, if his sacrifice was not enough to rescue sinners, to take my sin from me, and to pay the penalty for it, and to give me his righteousness, if that didn't happen, then I have no hope. I have no other hope. He is my only hope. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In fact, this is sort of a fulfillment of a prophecy in the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah says, all of your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. It's a very descriptive section. It's the same word that's used to speak of menstrual rags. Ew, right? <laughs> all of your righteousnesses, all of the good deeds that you and I try to do to make ourselves acceptable to God, are just like filthy rags. But if we will humble ourselves and trust the great news of Jesus, that he came to rescue sinners, that instead of establishing our own good deeds as the basis by which we are acceptable to God, instead of doing that, which is what every religious system is about, instead of doing that, we trust Jesus, that he is the righteous one, and that he gives us his righteousness as a gift to us, we trust him, and he takes our sin from us, and he gives us his righteousness. This puts us in a position of humility, in a position of gratitude, in a position where we can't look at the tax collectors and sinners and be like, I'm not going to eat with those people. You know why? Because you're a tax collector and a sinner. That's why we can't do that. Right? That's why we can't look at the others, if you would, and say, well, I'm not going to be around those people, or, or those people are just a waste of my time, or whatever, no matter what the other is that we're trying to define, whether it's based on race, or whether it's based on, on class, or whether it's based on some other type of status. 
<clears throat> I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And of course, that's, that's why and how we can show mercy to people. When I am at a place where I realize that my only standing with God is not because of my goodness, but because of his kindness to me then I find that I can be in a place when I can, where I can extend mercy to people and I can say, man, I know what it's like to struggle. I know what it's like to fail. I know what it's like. I understand because cause I'm just a man rescued by grace as the gift of God. And then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples don't fast? Jesus said to them, sort of shifting the conversation now, Jesus said to them, "Friends, uh, the friend, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Which, by the way, tells us something about the way fasting was viewed. It was viewed as a way to mourn, as a way to weep, to cry. Certainly, you may have been. I have had times in my life where I was in such overwhelming grief when I just didn't want to eat anything. It didn't matter. And I fasted and mourned. Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved." Jesus uses this illustration with the disciples of John when they're asking, why are we fasting all the time, but your disciples aren't abstaining from eating, right? Fasting is just not eating for some period of time. Why are we doing this and your disciples aren't doing this? And Jesus is like, listen, the friends of the groom, like when they're hanging out with their buddy at their bachelor party, are they fasting? Like, no, man, they're rejoicing, right? (laughs) But they cry, they weep whenever the, whenever the groom is taken away, right? I, I know that's how some of us felt whenever our friend got married, right? And they're like, oh, he's with his old lady now or whatever, you know. <laughs> and we weep and mourn because there's no more of the time we had with our, with our friend, right? Uh, that uh, certainly is the picture, the idea here of what's being said. But I like the other illustration that Jesus uses when he says nobody puts a a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment because the patch then pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. So you don't put new wine into old wineskins. As it uh, ferments, they would uh, expand and the old dried out sort of wineskins, instead of stretching as newer wineskins would, they would burst, they would explode, uh, is the idea here. Um, it seems that this is, at least to me, it seems like this is a way that Jesus is talking about how what he's doing is not just reforming bad people into good people. He's not just changing some old religious system into a more acceptable religious system. As it has been said, Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And that's a much bigger thing. When we can come to the realization, to the place where we realize that our sin makes us dead to God, his enemies... In fact, this is a theme that Paul picks up and expands on greatly in a number of Paul's letters. For you were dead in trespasses and sins, but he made you alive together with him. 
This is great news. He rescued us who were dead and gave us life, you guys. A life that will go on forever and ever in his kingdom. They put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. Now while he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came. Real quickly, we'll finish up these last couple of miracles. A ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Stop right there real, real quickly. Worshipped him by saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. That was worship. Saying to Jesus, My daughter is dead, but you can make her alive. This display of confidence, this display of trust in him is worship. That is worship. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. He could have said a word, but he didn't. The guy asked him to come, and so he came. Suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment, for she said, um, to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. This woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind. The other gospel writers that record the similar story uh, tell us that uh, there was crowds around Jesus. And when Jesus, uh, it says that he sensed that power had gone out from him. Here's the thing that I want that strikes me about this miracle. It, it was not only not, not initiated by Jesus, but this was literally a surprise miracle that Jesus did. It surprised him. Do you understand that? Like, he, he had no contact with this lady. She just is trusting God and believing this, and she grabs the hem of his garment, and Jesus is like, whoa, power just went out for me. And he stops. And he says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, what, what are you talking about? Are you out of your mind? There's crowds around us. What do you mean, who touched you? Because it wasn't a normal touch. It wasn't just the crowds pushing kind of touch. Power went out from him. The thing that strikes me about this is that it comes back to Jesus saying to her, be of good, dear, be of good, dear. Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Matthew's bringing us back to this thing where these miracles are rooted in their trust of God and their faith. They believed him. And the woman was made well from that hour. It's, I mean, it's an incredible, fascinating scene. Verse 23, when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players, it's the one whose daughter had died, saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing. This was the official mourning party. It was a very common thing. You could hire or certainly maybe just have friends or others who would come and officially mourn the death of someone. It was a, a sort of the funeral or memorial type service, a way to give honor to the deceased, to the person who had died. So Jesus came to the ruler's house and he saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing. And he said to them, make room for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. You see, I, I love this that like, I mean, stop, think about the story. Seriously, think about this story. Like, if you have in your mind the impression that these people don't know what a dead person or a dead body really is, then I think that you, you, you know, foolishly are looking back in history. Listen, people in history, while they may not have had the same scientific knowledge that we have now, everybody's not an idiot, okay? <laughs> like, like, people still thought about stuff, right? <laughs> like, they still used their, their minds. They still did have some uh, 
reality and science and history that was passed on, right? Things that they had built on, and of course then that we continue to build on as we learn many other things. But um, they know what a dead person's like. They know what a dead body's like, okay? And the guy comes to Jesus, and he says, my daughter is dead. And by the time and they make it there finally, and the the wailing party is there. Everybody's making this whole scene, and Jesus just says, "Make room. The girl is not dead, but sleeping," which is, by the way, going to become the New Testament euphemism for a Christian who dies. When Paul talked about believers who died, he said they were asleep. That's interesting. Um, I think some of that certainly was to get us out of get out of our minds the idea that death is really the end because it's not that physical death is really the end of life it's not <clears throat> he said to the make room for the girl is not dead but sleeping and they ridiculed him I mean right uh, rightly so right home home skillet comes in here forgive me Lord comes in here and he's like listen she's not dead she's just asleep and everybody's like, what are you, who is this guy, right? <laughs> like, we know dead people. <clears throat> so they made fun of him. When the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. There's some more details recorded in the other gospel writers uh, who record the same story. The report of this went out into all that land. I imagine it did, right? Jesus brings this girl back from the dead. Something that had happened previously. Uh, Prophet Elijah had raised, Elisha had raised someone from the dead as well. It's an interesting story in and of itself. When, last few verses. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? There, it comes back to that question of faith. Do you believe this? Do you trust me? Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. Look at that. I mean, according to your faith, let it be to you. It's almost, uh, as I read it, it's almost like this hands-off kind of, this is rooted in, in your trust, rooted in whether or not you believe it. <coughs> According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, saying, (laughs) I don't know what Jesus sternly warning people sounds like. I've sternly warned my children not to do stuff before. They usually don't listen to me. But I think it's pretty stern sometimes, right? I don't know what Jesus sternly warning (laughs) looks like, but uh, he sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. I mean, you just healed the guys of blindness, and you're like, Listen, don't tell anybody see that nobody knows it and they do the only logical thing that anyone anyone could do in that moment when they had departed they spread the news about him in all that country right he sternly warned them you know and uh they ignored his command (gasps) right they ignored jesus command immediately after he sternly warned them and he still healed them i mean before it happened I just love Jesus. He's just so good. <laughs> He's so much gooder than you. 
<laughs> I can say that because I have the microphone. I can make up words if I want. <laughs> As they went out, behold, they brought to him a man. This is one of those messianic miracles. Behold, they brought to him a man mute and demon-possessed. When the demon was cast out, the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled, saying, listen to their phrase, it was never seen like this in Israel. Oh, demons had been cast out before. Jewish exorcism was a common thing. In fact, it's going to be brought up later when the Pharisees are attacking Jesus. He's, when they essentially blaspheme the Spirit by saying what he's doing is by the power of Beelzebub, he's going to say, if I'm casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, then whose power are your children using to cast out demons, right? Because Jewish exorcism was a normal thing. It was a, it was a practice that was already around. Okay? So, anyways. Um, it was never seen like this in Israel. Okay, this is one of those messianic miracles the Jews believed they expected the Messiah would be able to do because others were not able to do it. <clears throat> the Pharisees then said, he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. And listen, everything's going to go downhill for them. The power that he's doing these miracles with, that he's casting out demons with, is demonic power. And of course, Jesus is going to address that directly and be like, "Does Satan cast out Satan? Like, what's the point of that? Right? <laughs> He'll deal with that later in another place. But um, verse 35 says this, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel, the great news of the kingdom of God, and healing, listen, every sickness and every disease among the people. I know that we like to wiggle out of these verses sometimes, but I just, it just says what it says. Jesus is showing Israel what the kingdom of God is like. And one day when this kingdom comes in fullness, as we mentioned before, there will be no more sickness and no death, no sorrow, no more crying, because all the former things will pass away. And that is in the end. That is our, our final hope. If, if we have hope in this life only, Paul would write that God's going to make our life easier, good now, we are of most men to be pitied. I mean, people should just pity us. But you see, our, our great hope, our final hope, is in the resurrection, is in the age to come. And all of the things that we see now are temporary, and God uses them to invest in and to make changes for and to prepare us for what is coming, for what is in the future. Because all of the things that we see are temporary. It's the unseen things that are eternal, Paul would write. But I want you to hear the heart of Jesus here. When he saw the multitudes, verse 36, he was moved with compassion for them. Because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, and the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And Matthew, in his text, in his um, telling of the stories in the next chapter, is going to set for us the twelve who are called by name to be Jesus' close disciples, and then he's going to send them out into, throughout the cities of Israel to make this announcement of the kingdom of heaven being within reach at hand and then Jesus is going to follow behind them and they're going to be rejected <laughs> and Jesus is going to be rejected and then he's going to pronounce judgment on the cities on Israel 
Okay, something that, of course, is then going to be fulfilled later, as we've been mentioning. But I wanted to um, just, I'm going to close with this idea here, it, this last idea here. Jeremiah 23 um, says this. Um, <clears throat> Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel against the shepherds who feed my people. You have scattered my flock, driven them away, and not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your evil doing or of your doings, says the Lord. But I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I have driven them, and bring them back to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called Jehovah Sidkenu, or the Lord our righteousness. Which is whom? <laughs> That's Jesus, y'all. <laughs> He's the branch. He's the king. He's the one sent to rescue. John chapter 10 says this. <clears throat> John chapter 10, um, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. I wish we had more time because I just want you to just think about that. Go home and think about it. <laughs> The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and he flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. Scatters them. You see, the hireling flees because he's a hireling and doesn't care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and they will be one flock and one shepherd. There will be one flock and one shepherd. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. <laughs> Psalm 23. <clears throat> the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want I've said it before when I was a kid I didn't understand that I was like if the Lord is my shepherd why don't I want him <laughs> just like a language issue Unfor my mom taught me to pray this every night before I went to bed when I was a little guy didn't understand what I was saying the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It means I have everything I need. There's nothing that I lack. And so in summary of this, of our Matthew chapter 9 setting, as Matthew's setting the scene for us with all of these miracles rooted in their trust, rooted in their faith, setting the scene for us about how Jesus is going to be rejected, <laughs> still we see Jesus moved with compassion doing so many wonderful things, good things, meeting very physical, natural needs that the people had. 
this overarching theme of resurrection from the dead, this overarching theme of the Messiah who's come to save. Not to save the righteous, because if you're already righteous, you don't need a Savior. (laughs) But he shows us that we're not righteous. (laughs) That's why we need a Savior. Go and learn what this means, he says to the Pharisees. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Uh, Like uh, the prophet says, right? In wrath, remember mercy. (laughs) I know somebody who... Never mind. (laughs) The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures... He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus is the good shepherd. If you haven't heard anything else that we talked about this morning, (coughs) hear him. He is the good shepherd. And the things that you are going through, dear saint, he leads you through. He is with you. He makes sure that you have what you need. He is with you to strengthen you. He is the good shepherd. Let's, Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Help us to trust you. Help us to be like Matthew, who just left everything to follow you. Help us to know that you really are a good shepherd. Even when we don't understand uh, the things that we face in this world that is full of chaos, to know that you are the good shepherd. (laughs) That we do hear your voice. And that we hear yours. Father, I pray that you'd comfort and that you'd bless, that you'd encourage as we continue marching on. <laughs> we know there's there's somewhere we're headed. <laughs> it's with you, Lord. And we get to experience some of that now as you fill us with your spirit, that we would know joy and peace in believing you. But we also know there's a fulfillment of that promise coming, of resurrection from the dead. And so we thank you for that reality too. Lord, would you use our lives, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, guys, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious with you. The Lord lift up his smile on you and give you peace, you guys.